You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. And we want to see the gospel go out, not limited by our own voice or even limited by where we would want or be called to exist. Uh, and so in just a minute, I'm going to get a, get a chance to introduce you to Mitchell Cooper, who's going to come up and open God's Word, update us on some of these things. But I, it's a really cool opportunity for you to see, uh, to put eyes and even names and faces to, uh, to investments that we have. These are people that we've prayed for. These are, these, when we, even on Sunday mornings, when we think about and pray about the gospel to go out, these are the mechanisms, the means by which, through God's grace, it's going out. So Mitchell, would you come stand up here uh, and uh, introduce yourself uh, as well? He's going to show us some pictures and tell us some more. Uh, uh, and he's going to bless you the ways that he's blessed me. So would you, would you welcome him this morning? Hey, good morning. It is a purely delight for me to be with you this morning. Uh, like Jonathan said, my name is Mitchell Cooper. I have the honor and privilege of serving as one of the staff pastors at uh, Redeemer Fellowship of Kuwait in the Middle East. Uh, my family's here, uh, Emily, my wife, uh, daughter and sons, Lydia, Ezra, Isaiah, and Silas. Uh, my father-in-law and mother-in-law are here. They live in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, Alan, Charlene. So it's a pleasure for us to be here among family, among friends. And as Jonathan mentioned, we're part of uh, what many would consider to be a church plant in one of the harder areas of the world, uh, Kuwait. The process for us started in March of 2019, and uh, we were ready and set to go in September of 2020. And as many of you know, 2020 was a really interesting year, and I'm not going to unpack all that because PTSD is real and hard on all of us. So uh, it wasn't until May of 2022 that in earnest, the Cooper family uh, started to make our way to Kuwait to be a part of a church plant with some of our teammates who were able to start in earnest, Redeemer Fellowship of Kuwait in November, December of 2021 with 30 of our good friends. For those of you who are less geographically inclined, um, here's a map. So we're going to get ourselves ready and centered. Uh, this is a map, what you would probably consider to be Saudi Arabia is the big part in there down on the bottom. You might see Yemen on the left-hand side. You'd see Oman towards the north, tucked away in the top right-hand corner is this little country, Kuwait. That's where we live. That's where we serve. Kuwait is, has a population of about four and a half million people. Only a third of those are actually Kuwaiti citizens. From there, they live there. One and a half million. So the other three million people who live there are what would be considered expats or expatriates, immigrants who come to work and to live in the economy, in the life of Kuwait. And so you have a large population of people who feel displaced, large uh, segment of the population who feel like they're not a part of everything. Oh, that is a really bad picture. <laughs> it looked great on my iPad. Um, the blurry part in the top, you can't even see it. Uh, so if I take my hand and go straight up, there it is. All the way to the top, actually. Uh, my wife was just doing this the whole time, so. It looks great right here. I don't know what the problem is. We'll see how these other pictures turn out. I have a few more. So here we go. This is fun. Um, we went as a family. Hey, that's a lot better. So this is our kids with uh, two other friends. And one of the things people notice first off and ask first off is, tell me about Kuwait. And probably the most like 
defining characteristic is it's in the desert and it's really hot. So this is our, our kids, Lydia, Ezra, Isaiah, and Silas, at one of the larger markets in the area, just trying to cool down, standing under uh, this steam machine with a fan here at the end of the spring. And it was already pushing 100 degrees uh, and it's warm. And so that's one of the things that helps define culture, right? Because, because we're in the desert, because uh, it's hot all the time, people spend a lot of time indoors. And because um, Kuwait has a lot of oil money and a lot of affinity, and they have a lot of people coming in. Uh, there's a lot of places to hang out. So our kids are able to hang out here in this major um, market right there. They're standing, as it turns out, in front of a mosque. As you might know, Kuwait is uh, predominantly a Muslim culture, a Muslim uh, people. And so they're standing in front of a mosque here, and any five times a day, they're going to hear the call to prayer, which is not something you hear in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, regularly, I, as far as I know. Um, so pray for our kids. Uh, they're making friends. They're, they're learning things about life in Kuwait, about how hot it is, about uh, the religions there, and they're growing and they're learning. Our kids actually, uh, the entirety of their life in Florida, where we came from, were public school kids. They're with friends all day, every day. Uh, and because of the way things are set up in Kuwait, they've actually gone from public school kids now to homeschool kids. Uh, and so if you want to hear about the joys of being the single girl among three squirrely boys in a homeschool classroom, my daughter Lydia will be happy to tell you, and she's cowering right now because I mentioned her name, which is fine. Maybe don't go ask her about it. That's okay. We'll see how it goes. Uh, so pray for the Cooper kids, that they'd be able to learn and grow, and their worldview would be stretched in line with the gospel. Uh, one of the other highlights from this year that I wanted to, uh, to bring up to you is our uh, joy in starting a youth group. Uh, so at literally May 5th of 2022, I land in the airport, and before I even have my bags, one of the guys uh, who's a little younger goes, when are we starting a youth group? And I'm like, I haven't even gotten over jet lag, man. Hold on, we're, we're get there, we'll get there. And so in May of 2022, just started going through the Gospel of Mark with about four or five kids. Uh, the summer's pretty transitory. So then in September, we're able to like spread the word and tell everybody, hey, we're gonna be doing this. We're gonna be walking through some Truth 78 curriculum out of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minnesota. We're gonna walk through the Sermon on the Mount. Anyone uh, ages 12 to 18 is welcome to come. And we've had consistently about 20 kids who have come to learn the word on Thursday evenings in this pivotal age range. Uh, and this summer, I was actually reading some, some literature just trying to understand uh, my own children, what they're going through right now, having lived in Florida their whole lives practically and just transitioning to a different culture altogether. And so there's this phenomena in the missions world called third culture kids. Kids who, um, be not of their own decision, are now living in a completely different culture that they wouldn't necessarily call home, but that's where their family is. And it struck me this summer that of the 20 kids who are in our youth group, who might feel displaced, not really have a sense of home or belonging or who they are, all of them are third culture kids. All of their dads or moms are working in an industry outside of the culture in which they would find most comfort and most fulfillment or, or most attachment. And so we have a youth group of kids who uh, love each other, who talk to each other, play together, love on each other, love the word, um, but the sense of home is something that we're really trying to press into. So that's been a highlight, being able to, to hang out with the kids on Thursday evening, kids, youth, however I'm supposed to call them. One of the other highlights this last year was um, our Christmas Eve service. This was the biggest thing we did all year, and so this is one thing I just wanted to highlight. Literally, uh, all we did was sing Christmas carols and read from the Gospel of Luke, the Christmas story. But we just made this little electronic note, um, postcard and said, all right, everybody, pass them out. Just go for it. And we had over 300 people show up. 
Uh, one of our elders, he and his wife have been in Kuwait for a while. They alone had about 40 people that they know, most of whom have never been in a church before, come to our Christmas Eve service where we sang the gospel, we read the gospel, and we preached the gospel. And then we had a meal afterwards. And one of our other friends, Stephen, was able to, to um, invite some guys from this work camp that he goes and ministers to. One of the downsides of Kuwait having a lot of oil money and affinity and affluency, excuse me, is that they bust in and bring in people from all over the world to take really hard jobs in the desert and pay them almost nothing. Put them in high-rise buildings with a dozen other guys, and they live on almost nothing. And so my friend Stephen has been able to go and minister to them, and he actually invited them to our Christmas Eve service, where we had a buffet afterwards. And Emily uh, was mentioning the other day, recounting the story of whenever she was going through the line of this buffet, she just st st uh, took a step back and watched these guys as they walked in and just went blank, like, I don't even know how to do this. I've never had a meal like this before. Who are these people that invited me in in such a way that I'd be able to come to a feast and sing and watch people love on each other? And so that was one of the highlights of my year. One of the other highlights... Um, over the last year, a few times we've been able to do baptisms, and this is our friend Susanna Miller. She's actually grown up most of her life in Kuwait. Her parents are teachers. She's been a part of her church her whole life. And through different life circumstances, she has really struggled uh, the last few years with identity issues, with um, who she is, with finding meaning and purpose in her life, and had really gotten to a really dark place in December, January, February this last year. And because of her own account and her own testimony, because of the love of the church, because of the love of Christ poured out in her life, um, she came to faith this year. After sitting in church for 15, 16 years, her whole life, Christ, his gospel broke through and she was able to come to faith, understand it for who, what it really is. And she was baptized and it was glorious. A uh, couple more pictures and then we'll jump into the text. Uh, this is our staff picture. <laughs> there's three of us. Uh, and it turns out uh, there's um, some transition going on in our life right now. So that's uh, me in the blue shirt, my good friend Joel, uh, who is from Indian background and culture, but he actually grew up in Kuwait. Brother speaks English, he speaks Arabic, he speaks Malayalam. Literally anybody walk around, he can, he can talk to this guy, understands expat life in Kuwait better than anybody. And he serves the church through a lot of admin, through a lot of clerical work, and just planning, helping me think through what uh, should happen next in the church. But then on the left-hand side, and my picture looks pink. I'm not sure if he's wearing a pink shirt or not. Uh, Blaine, our teammates. Uh, and one of the harder parts of this last year, uh, long story short, was sometime this spring, uh, through a lot of turmoil, not turmoil, through a lot of trying and thinking through and planning and execution and trying to think through everything, uh, it turns out my teammate, uh, our friends Blaine and Kelly, are not able to return uh, to Kuwait this year. Uh, so we're feeling a sense of loss. Amid a church that has grown from about 30 folks in uh, December of 2021 to averaging somewhere between 150, 180 on a Friday morning uh, this last spring, um, our teammates are not able to come back. And so Emily and I are just kind of processing what it means to jump back in and do all these things. God in his good, uh, gracious kindness to us uh, is bringing people alongside us to serve on staff. Uh, but uh, Blaine was there at the beginning, and so we're feeling that sense of loss. And the last picture I'll show is just a picture of half of our members. This is after one of our members' meetings. Let me make sure it's crystal clear. Perfect. Uh, this is after one of our members' meetings. So this is about half of the folks uh, who make up Redeemer Fellowship of Kuwait. Uh, as I mentioned, December of 2020, we were 
2021, we we're averaging about, we had about 30 members, and right now uh, it's about 90 members. So the Lord, in his uh, gracious kindness to us, is bringing people who long to hear the word, who long to grow in their understanding of grace and the gospel and who Jesus is. Um, and these are our friends and our family. One last thing. Uh, Jonathan already mentioned the whole QR code thing. So here's the deal. Uh, if you would like to receive our newsletter, which we put out all the time, actually just for my mental well-being, everybody get your phones out. And whether you're gonna take a picture or not, just act like you're taking a picture, pull out the QR code. Uh, that way I just have the impression that there's uh, people out there who would like to get our email newsletter. We try to send this out about once a month. Uh, this will send you to a little uh, up, uh, sign up, uh, first name, last name, email address, church. That's really all it is. Uh, and if you're just feigning right now and just showing me your cell phone, that's completely fine. If you're not going to read it, please don't sign up because carbon emissions or something, I don't know. <laughs> so that's a little bit of an update. Um, and as we jokingly say, that, that could have been five hours because there's just been so much that's happened over the last year. But what we really wanted to do, um, what I wanted to do, and what I love to do is bring the word before you. So if you have your Bible, let's turn to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 12 to 17 this morning. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. And I'm going to start by reading that, and then uh, we'll jump in to the sermon. So Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Paul says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanks, thank, uh, thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul expounds who Christ is. We heard that read this morning in a beautiful passage uh, Joe read from Colossians chapter 1. He expounds, Paul does, who Christ is, who the Colossians are in Christ, and then he points out a heretical teaching among them uh, that was problematic to both of those categories, who they were and who Christ is. In chapter 3, then, Paul part starts to unpack the implications for this theological uh, reasoning from chapters 1 and 2. He encouraged the Colossian church to set their minds on things above, to, quote, put to death what belongs to the sinful nature and see the kind of multicultural community that God was building among them. That language put to death in chapter 3 should cause us to pause for a moment. A friend of mine recently uh, likened the sins Paul listed in chapter 3 to someone in our house and asked how we viewed them. Do we see those sins as an annoying house guest we hope would leave soon? Do we see those sins as a relative that we don't particularly like, but we know will always be nearby? Or as an intruder who is threatening everything we hold dear? I hope you see the differences in the metaphors. Sin is the intruder who threatens. Sin is not simply an annoying house guest. 
sin must be put to death. So as we turn to our passage this week, chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, it's important to begin where Paul begins. So before he really gets going, he tucks away this little but all too important word. In the ESV, it's then. Some of your Bibles start with the word therefore. However, translated, Paul is connecting the reason for the command for the command here at the beginning. Reason and command. He actually does the work for us and spells out yet again the theological basis that underlies what he is about to ask us to do. We are, he says, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Friends, this is not pure sentimentality. While potentially an overwhelming thought in its own right, Paul's language here is specific. It's intentional. It points to something. The theological basis for chapter 3, verses 12 to 17, is our new found identity in Jesus. To be more specific, God has called us out of darkness into his glorious light and is making a new people for himself. This comes first. Paul in no way is encouraging the Colossians to fake it until they make it. This is not Aristotelian virtue ethics. The order here is important. Their standing before God is not dependent upon their ability to carry out this list of tasks or their ability to do things good Christians do. It goes the other way. Now that they see what Christ has done for them and have experienced that grace, this is how they should relate to one another. But one more point about the particular phrasing Paul uses here. So why chosen? Why holy? Why beloved? Do they come together like this anywhere else in Scripture? Consider Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote your, them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. Quote, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. So here in Deuteronomy chapter 7, we see the children of Israel standing on the edge of the promised land, pressed and ready to take the inheritance that had been promised to them after the exodus, after the wilderness wanderings, 
after the giving of the law, after the covenant with their forefather Abraham, here they are about to enter. And what does God give them as the reason for stepping out on faith and doing what looked to be impossible? His reason is clear. You are mine. I bought you. I delivered you. I am with you. You are mine. So now enter my rest. And in clear contrast to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, where the chosen people are primarily from one nation, Paul reminds us in Colossians 3 verse 11 that God is now choosing for himself individuals from all peoples. Christ is all and in all, he says. Friends, why belabor this this morning? Why go to such lengths to make sure we don't gloss over these few choice words here at the beginning of this section? Why drive home and double down on Paul's allusion to Deuteronomy 7 here? Because what Paul asks of us is simply impossible unless you are in Christ. Unless Christ is yours and his good news has gloriously and miraculously adopted you into his family by the power of the Holy Spirit, the things that he will ask of us in verses 12 to 17 will be impossible. And at best, they will lead you to despair or at worst, leave you in your own delusional self-righteousness. A hypocrite in sheep's clothing. If you think putting your sin to death sounds hard, putting on the kind of clothes we see in this passage will be all the harder. So perhaps now it'd be best to ask yourself if the objective reality of Christ's death on a cross for you and the subjective experience of God's calling on your life his holiness, his love through Christ's atoning work on the cross, if it's actually yours, if what Christ did has been applied to you in your life, if the goodness and grace of God is something that you have seen and experienced and tasted and touched, do you know these things to be true and do you know them to be true in your own life? Has he forgiven you? Have you been justified and sanctified and glorified in him? Have you been adopted into his family? So here we are looking at a clothing metaphor, which is perhaps my least favorite metaphor in the Bible. I don't really do clothing all that much. Pretty normal. Some of your translations will simply say put on, while others go to with clothe yourself, like in the NIV. So what are we to make of this? Does the Bible itself help us understand this New Testament metaphor? Like, are we just supposed to put on these things and walk around as if they're ours, even though we know what's going on underneath? No. As it turns out, the Old Testament points to the significance of clothing in a number of places. After all, clothes do more than just protect us from the elements. We can start by going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. God creates the heavens and the earth in glorious display of his power, might, and wisdom. Day 6 of creation, he creates man to rule over the fish and the birds and the livestock. And it turns out clothes weren't exactly necessary. 
uh, for either physical or social reasons. For we read in chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 25, that both Adam and Eve were naked and felt no shame. Then comes the fall. And after the consequences of our first parents' sin are doled out, God does what? He covers them. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The very clothes they put on day in and day out were a reminder of God's grace in their lives. Reminders post-Eden that he was still their father, that their sin was costly, that he himself would be the one to cover them. And while there's other Old Testament references to the significance of clothing, Joseph's coat of many colors, perhaps, the high priest's robe, the breastpiece, all those things, one of the more peculiar ones comes from, from the story of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As they face King Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace, after their response sends the king into a rage, he orders the fire to be set seven times hotter than usual, and the writer of Daniel tells us in verse 21, quote, Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the fiery furnace. And just so you know that this is not superfluous detail, the author circles back to the clothes, clothes in verse 27 to let us know that all those clothes they were wearing in the fire none of them even smelt like smoke, much less had any burnt marks on them. So while seemingly insignificant, the clothes of the three Israelites provided yet another reminder of God's loving protection over them. So imagine for a second, putting that coat on the next day, or on the one-year anniversary, or in the waning years of your life. Imagine the stories that these three Israelites would have told wearing those clothes around a campfire. Humor me one more story about clothes from the Bible. Just one. Or should I say one more story where clothes actually uh, play a part in our understanding of what's going on. Luke chapter 15. Pretty familiar story. Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. Again, this is a story we tell ourselves over and over again in church. Our kids have heard it a dozen times by the time they reach adulthood. Easily. It's a powerful story. For those perhaps hearing it for the first time, allow me a summary. A man had two sons. The second of the two sons asked for his inheritance early, essentially scorning his family and indicating he doesn't care anything about them, only wanting the money. And in an unexpected turn, his father actually obliges. The son takes off and blows every last cent. In a moment of clarity, surrounded by the muck and the mire of the pigsty, he realizes working as a hired servant for his father would be better than where he is now. So he returns. He's not sure how he'll be received or if he will be received. He just knows he's desperate. As he approaches his father's house, and he's practicing his I'm sorry speech, his father, who is sitting on the front porch in anticipation, sees him and bolts towards his prodigal son. Do you remember the first words out of his father's mouth? Bring the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And then what? They party. 
Imagine you're that prodigal son. Imagine waking up the next morning and grabbing that robe from your closet, seeing the ring on your dresser, or slipping those sandals on again for the first time since your father had given them to you. Do you think he would pause? If even for a moment, and close your eyes as flashes of your father running toward you filled your mind and your heart. Can you imagine when the time came for you to give that ring to your own son? Telling him how you came by it. Telling him how you were once lost. Utterly hopeless. Before you even had a chance to apologize, your father placed that ring on your finger. Clothes have significance. Clothes tell stories. They remind us of things. They bear the weight of life's choices and life's moments. So often they point beyond themselves. So keep this in mind as Paul now tells us what we are to put on day in and day out. So in this subsection, he gives us five articles of clothing, as it were, to put on, and then two qualifiers describing the manner in which we're to use those pieces of clothing. Uh, let's take each one briefly in turn. Uh, and something that I, I find to be really important and significant, I'm actually going to define each of these things. Definitions have lost their place in our world. What things mean tends to point inwardly and not to the world around us. And so bear with me as I define each of these things. Compassion, here in the Greek, is an interesting concept. Where we have compassionate hearts here in the ASV, and uh, Paul literally tells the Colossians to have bowels of compassion. Probably didn't think you were going to hear that word this morning. Where we often see the seat of emotions in the heart, in the upper part of the chest, for the Jewish writers at the time of Jesus, they pointed to the lower extremities of the torso to show the depth of the emotion. Compassion, then, is a deep grief over the loss of the good in a person's life. We experience compassion when we recognize this loss in another person's life. Whether that's the loss of a loved one or the loss of basic necessities or the loss of dignity, it's this recognition and attendant grief that drives us to act on behalf of another. Kindness in today's world is often downplayed. In the broader culture, it doesn't bear much weight, but in biblical context, the one we see most often displaying acts of kindness is God himself. It is God's own goodness displayed in gracious acts. Think of Romans chapter 2, verse 4, quote, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Or consider Romans 11, verse 22. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. It's goodness displayed in gracious acts. Humility was often viewed negatively in the ancient world, much like it is today. After all, how is someone supposed to get ahead in the world with an attitude like that? And yet we see Jesus flip this kind of thinking consistently in the Gospels, but most clearly in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. 
Paul himself gives us a good working definition for humility just prior to that statement in Philippians 2, verse 3, where he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Humility is in a very real way others-focused as you delight in seeing what God is doing in them, how his goodness is being cultivated in that other person. Meekness involves the use of one's strength in a way that does no harm to the other. It's closely tied to the biblical concept of gentleness. And while any number of word pictures of Christ from the gospel will suffice to show us his concept, consider Moses for a second. When Moses was faced with undeserved criticism, what was his response? Instead of begging God to vanquish his enemies, he prayed for them. He prayed that God's mercy would be theirs. His meekness drove him to seek mercy for those who had done him harm, even while he was in a raised position over them. Lastly, Paul tells us to clothe ourselves with patience. Thanks, Paul. Why is it that patience is the one virtue that always causes us to stop for a second and go, oh, here we are again. It's typically a subtle and collective groan in the room, as if we're all saying, not, not again. Is it really that obvious that we all know precisely what patience is and that we simply lack any discernible measure of it? Consider both sides of patience with me before we move on. Patience says two things. In God's economy, I don't have to have my own way. And even when things are going poorly, I know that good will come out of this present suffering. Patience is hard to come by. Patience is hard to put on. But here we are, staring down the end of Paul's list of clothes to put on, and patience has made the cut. So it would be one thing for Paul to simply give us a list of nice virtues to put on, as if we were back to assuming adorning ourselves the only function of clothing. But having now seen what each of our garments are and what we should, they should look like, Paul tells us what function and purpose they have in our lives. As we put on these things, we're to then what? Bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. The mark of the new community, friends, here at Connection Church. Those who have been called, made holy, and received his love. This new community is one that bears with one another and forgives each other. Think about the context in which this kind of instruction uh, would need to play out. Do we bear with one another when things are going super well? Do we bear with one another when we are in a company of those we really easily get along with? Do we bear with one another when the others were walking in, when uh, the others we were walking with in the fullness of the Spirit? Is Paul telling us to bear with those who are fully displaying love and joy and peace and patience and the rest? No, he's not. Living in community is hard. Being in close proximity to others who still bear the marks of the sinful nature requires that we put on compassion, knowing that we grieve over the sin displayed in another brother's life. 
It requires we put on kindness so that we can be like our Heavenly Father, repaying good for evil. It requires humility. It requires gentleness. Bearing with one another requires the patience to see that God's goodness is at work in the lives of others, even when seeing is difficult. But not only, uh, Paul not only encourages us to bear with one another, he encourages us to forgive each other. And his understanding of forgiveness is just about as broad as humanly possible. Notice how he says, quote, if anyone has a complaint against another, there's no qualifier here. He is talking to you. And he's saying that if you have something against another, aka anyone, you are to forgive. You're to say in your heart and in your dealings with them, I forgive you. I don't hold it against you. I desire fellowship with you over my own way, over my own rights, over punishment. And what then is the basis of this forgiveness? How in the world can Christians forgive this way? Paul tells us. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So there you have it. Those who have experienced the joy and freedom of divine forgiveness are then able to forgive others. Christ himself has set the pattern and the possibility for us to forgive one another. After all, which of us would ever be able to forgive someone else to the same degree that God has forgiven us? Were we to cancel every debt of sin ever committed against us, it would be a drop in the bucket compared to the sin we have committed against a holy and just God. And it is only by the sheer grace of his goodwill that we are able to go about our day. So when you would rather hold on to your bitterness and unforgiveness, consider reading Matthew 18, verses 23 to 35. For real, write, like write it out in your notes. Matthew 18, 23 to 25. Read it later today. Further still, when you feel like you've forgiven your brother or sister enough times, I don't know, perhaps seven times in a single day, 70 times, whatever it is, remind yourself what Christ has called you to. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive others. But lastly, in this section, Paul tells us, above all, these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So humor me one more definition. This one also my own. It's pretty widely known and discussed in our uh, culture that love as an idea simply lacks any clear definition. After all, you can love your kids. Mine are over there. You can love your favorite sports teams. You can love tacos at Taco John's on Tuesdays. But for our purposes and understanding this passage, consider this definition of love to recognize, delight in, and seek all the more the good in another's life. To recognize, delight in, and seek all the more the good in another's life. So as we bear with one another and forgive each other, we do so because we have a burning desire to see the goodness of God displayed and cultivated in that person's life. And we're willing to be patient with them. Just as God has been patient with us, we're willing to be kind to them even when they are not kind to us because this is how God dealt with us. And is doing so gently 
leading us on the path to repentance. These are the clothes of the new community in Christ. These are the things we put on, which bind us in Christ one to another. So as Paul continues in verse 15 through 16, there's a bit of a grammatical shift, if you will, where throughout chapter 3 we're called to put on or put away or put to death. Here we're called to let. We go from an active role to one that seems to be more passive. So in verse 15, Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. Could I just for a moment ask if the peace of Christ is ruling in your heart? Or in your heart of hearts, would you confess that your heart is marked by more stress and anxiety and worry and doubt and strife and fear? Have you opened the gates, as it were, and let Christ have his way in your heart, clearing out that fear, clearing out that anxiety, as he sits enthroned as the Prince of Peace? Do you bear with each other and forgive one another, letting the, Christ, the peace of Christ rule among you? After all, for the one who is in Christ, who sees himself or herself as one, or sees him, sorry, as the one who has conquered sin and death and the grave, sees him as the one who made peace with God on our behalf, sees him as the one who will come again making all things new and right as they should be. For that person who has experienced the work of Christ and walks in peace, all we have left is to be thankful. We have no grounds for boasting or quarreling or jockeying for position. All we have as adopted children of the king is gratitude. Our hearts, now flooded with the peace of Christ, turn back to him with nothing to give on our own because we realize that all we have that is good and pleasing to him has actually come from him. Even the compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience we put on are ours because he has given them to us. And so when you gather together, what should you remind yourself of? Remind yourselves of all he has done for you. Remind yourselves of all he has taught you as you, quote, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let his word take the active role in what is taught and spoken among you. Do not preach your own thoughts or ideas. Do not preach or proclaim those things that will tickle your ears or delight the world around you. Determine to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. It is his work you proclaim. It is his words you cherish. And so in teaching and admonishing one another, in all wisdom. And when you gather to sing, intentionally choose songs that focus your heart on what Christ has done on your behalf. What he is doing now among you and what he has promised will be at the consummation of all things. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with what? Thanks, thanksfulness in your heart to God for all he has accomplished, knowing we bring nothing. And finally, to sum up this section, Paul covers every single one of his basis with the sentiment, and whatever you do, in word or deed, 
Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Love, forgiveness, gratitude. Friends, these are the mark of the new community in Christ. These are the marks of one who's been touched by grace. These are the marks of the one who has walked and is walking with Jesus as his own. So tomorrow morning, when you wake up and the day is in front of you, what will you put on? Will you clothe yourself with anger or will you clothe yourself with gentleness? Will you clothe yourself with greed or will you clothe yourself with humility? Will you clothe yourself with worry and anxiety and bitterness or will you clothe yourself with compassion and patience and love, letting the peace of Christ rule in your heart? You see, just as the fig leaves before and the animal skins after were reminders to Adam and Eve of their fallenness, in God's grace. Just as the robes of the three Hebrew children were a reminder of God's deliverance from the fiery furnace, and just as the robe and the ring of his father would be a daily reminder and proclamation to the prodigal son that he was his father's yet again, so too put on compassion as a reminder and proclamation of God's compassion towards you. Put on kindness in a harsh world as a reminder of God's kindness towards you. Put on humility as a reminder that all you have is from God. Put on gentleness in a world that pushes and shoves and fights to get ahead as a proclamation that your place has already been set at your father's table. Put on patience, especially with one another, as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, just as your brother and sister is doing for you. And overall, put on love with gratitude in your hearts as a reminder that when you act in love towards others, delighting in and seeking the good in others, you're doing so because of the love that has so lavishly been poured out in your own life. Put these things on as a reminder to yourself and everyone around you who you are in Christ. Remind yourself what your Father says. You are bought you. I delivered you. I am with you. You are mine. Friends, let's pray together. King Jesus, we love you not as we should and not as you deserve, but we love you all the same because your love has been so lavishly poured out into our hearts. We don't have to walk in fear, in worry, in anxiety, in bitterness, and unforgiveness. We can walk as your own. We can walk in the grace and goodness that has been yours from before time began. 
Father, we ask that as we put on these things day in and day out, we would do so not as those who are striving to be yours, but those who have been given a place at your table, adopted as your sons and daughters. Father, even now, by the power of your Spirit, I ask that you would draw men and women in this room to yourself, that they might know what it is to be yours, that they might know what it is to have Christ's forgiveness and to be welcomed into a family, that they might know what it is to be given a ring and a robe and sandals because of the grace and compassion that has been found in you. Father, I ask that you would spur on the saints in this room towards love for one another and forgiveness, that compassion and kindness and gentleness and meekness and faithfulness might be ours, that we would walk in these things because of what you have done, knowing that you have secured all things as we eagerly await all that you will do for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.